Hi, my name's Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A, and this is our weekly M&A Q&A. And we've got Don Hawes, who's the CEO of Selby Anderson. Don is actually one of our clients, and the reason why I want to get him in front of you is because he's probably making some of the fastest acquisitions I've seen, particularly for a company of his size. So he's building an agency group of highly specialized marketing companies that want fast growth. And the business is only two years old and they've already made eight acquisitions. So I think one of the reasons why this is going so quickly is that Dom has a very clear approach himself to making offers, valuing the businesses and getting those acquisitions closed up. So we're going to delve into what it is that he's doing that's helping him do this so quickly and it's giving him this excellent track record in such a short space of time. So, hi, Dom. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Very good. Thanks, Andy. And hi, guys. Nice nice to meet you. Great. So, just kick off very quickly with a quick background check on you then, Dom, and find out how it is that you got started <laughs> in the whole marketing world before you actually came into M&A. Well, yeah. So, my, well, my second career was in marketing. I started actually in the, in the British Army. I did six years in the Army. And when I left there, I made the transition into marketing, which was not an easy route. So, I, I, did, I did basically odd jobs for a year and a half. And then started in the post room of a PR agency, which was the only way I could get in. But that was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, things worked pretty well from there. So I spent six years in agency originally, started out in PR, but then I moved more into broader marketing consultancy and ended up doing a lot of kind of marcoms and marketing consultancy just before the millennium. Um, I jumped ship like everyone else did at that stage to go and join a, uh, a dot com. But I swapped sites pretty quickly and joined a, um, an incubator fund, venture capital incubator fund. Uh, where we started 16 companies. I was there as their VP marketing. So I helped people with business plans and getting up and running. So the kind of entrepreneurial and venture and the kind of finance side, I guess, started there. I then set up and built my own company over about six, eight years, which we sold to an American outfit. That went really badly. I mean, in fact, if that went really, really badly, I'm the guy who thought he'd sold a company but ended up having to sell his house. <laughs> so, and I, I've, just written, I've just written a chapter in a book about that, actually, funny enough, it's how it can go badly wrong. But that's, that's kind of an important driver about how we got to where we are right now. So I then lit, that was 2012, that all unwound and went really badly wrong. So I lit my wounds, went consulting probably for five, six years, and then came back in to, to, to set out to do something I've kind of tried to do in 2014, but I didn't really have my mojo, if I'm honest. So I, I, I wanted to go and build a group of agencies. I always saw marketing as my home territory, but I didn't have any money. And I didn't have any agencies to buy. I just had a business plan. <laughs> and I didn't have an agency of my own. So I thought, well, this is my starting point was to try and, well, I'll set up an agency, but it ended up being a consultancy. I fell into that dreadful trap of, you know, being one person who spends all their time working on clients, so you can't look for new ones. But one of the clients I worked with was a property mogul. He's one of the time's richest property entrepreneurs, excuse me, GI. And throughout the process of what I'd done, I'd got pretty good at Excel modeling. In fact, really good at Excel modeling, building kind of really detailed models with lots and lots of bells and whistles. What ifs? So investors like what ifs? What if this happens? What if interest rates go up? What if your rate of growth isn't so fast? What if the companies are bigger, smaller? So I built all those levers in for this guy. Right. So I did I did a big, big piece of work for him. And he then asked me to do a project with him acquiring three companies for him. So he was acquiring care homes because he wanted the property, but they all had businesses attached. 
Mm. So I ended up modeling their businesses and acquiring, acquiring those on his behalf and then integrating them. And then, you know, as luck would have it, I was at a party and a friend said, why are you doing this for him? Why don't you do it for yourself? Ah, did I light bulb moment? Yeah, if I can do it for him, I can do it for me. So the thing about these property moguls is not many of them actually got any money. <laughs> they have these really complicated structures where they lend lend each lend money in and out. But they don't actually have a great deal. So for me, the, the missing link was um, they they run a they run a structure called they call Opco Propco, where you know an operating company delivers all the services and a property company owns all the stuff. And when a partner comes in to invest for them, they come in and they take ownership of the op, of the Propco, but not the Opco, if that makes sense. And so I originally thought, well, why don't we structure a marketing services group exactly the same way? Why don't we go out and try and find investors to invest in the assets, but we'll deliver the services in and own those? And that was the way originally I thought we'd go about doing this. It's not how it panned out, actually, but that was the original plan. Right. So a very long answer to a very short question, but <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I ended up exactly where we are now. So, so I noticed that Selby Anderson was the acquirer to your consultancy business. I've seen that somewhere. So how did that? Yeah, so, well, well, <laughs> so both Simon and I had businesses. Simon, Simon had bought a business called Keen, which was a kind of a lobbying corporate, corporate affairs company um, about seven years previously. And basically, he'd slightly fallen out of love with corporate affairs and, and certainly the lobbying side, I think, was a lot harder. Um, and I had um, Davidson Hawes, which wasn't really going anywhere, if I'm honest. But I needed to take the intellectual property right. So I, I bankrolled the development of Selby Anderson through my other company. And I just needed a clean way of bringing all of that stuff into the new entity. So I acquired, in fact, he clo- I acquired Davidson Hawes. And in fact, we then just shut um, Simon's business down. Right. Uh, but that, that just transferred. I mean, it, was, it didn't need to be done, if I'm honest. I, I could have done and I could have not done it. We, we brought the clients across that I had, that I was consulting to. But they've since, as clients do, gone elsewhere anyway. So, so, they, so the, the acquisition of those two things wasn't anything okay. significant. That so Selby Anderson essentially was a clean sheet of paper for you to do this. Yeah, it was a, being in a totally clean vehicle. So I know you yeah. a couple of smaller acquisitions right at the start. Yeah, almost like a practice run to some degree, but I know there was issues with those as well. So, can you tell well, us the very first acquisition? Yeah, so although I had a really big model, which would tell me what we could do if we had the money. So the model didn't, <laughs> didn't have the, I didn't have the money, right? So there's a chicken and egg situation, and I guess you guys maybe, if you have agencies of your own, you may be in a different situation. But I didn't have any. I didn't really have an entity. I didn't really have any money, and I didn't really have anyone that I could buy. There's a chicken and egg situation going on here. So the first thing I needed to do was sort out some funding. And my first place to look was debt, because obviously it's the most efficient way of of funding anything. So I did a deal with ABN AMRO where they were going to fund acquisitions using confidential invoice discounting and cash flow loans. And that was all great on paper until I put them in front of the very first. So so then, then I started making posts on LinkedIn saying I'm looking to buy marketing agencies. And that was my only outlet to start. I just literally just did LinkedIn posts. Uh, but but every time I posted, I may not have got an agency, but I got a lead, someone who knew someone who thought they had something. And um, a bit by bit, I started to get a pipeline. So I had agencies and I went to meet them and I had the full conversations with them as though I was going to acquire them, but I didn't yet have the cash. So the very first one, which is Orchid, actually, uh, which we did acquire in the end, 
in June 2019, June 2018, ABN Amro sent in their analysts to go and have a look at the business. So as a bank, they're going to want to check all the details before they do the invoice discounting or, or release any cash against future cash flows. And they came out saying, oh, this is a really great business. Good deal. Uh, we'll definitely back this. A week later, they completely reversed their position, said, no, oh, we've had an internal meeting and um, we've decided that we're... Uh, this is being recorded. You better bleep out the real names here. I forgot this is being recorded. It didn't happen. I'll, that I'll bleep them out. Could you bleep it out? Yeah. So there was a bank, right? And the bank changed. The bank changed their mind, and it was pretty. It, it was awkward because by that stage, the owner of that agency has explained to their team what's going on, and you know, no one wants to say, "Hey, we're selling to someone," because you know, clients and staff may leave. Um, so we were in a really awkward position. I didn't have any cash, and um, and I didn't have any banking facilities. So we decided we were going to have to go equity only and, and started looking at a fundraise. Um, and serendipitously, you know, again, a bit through a bit of LinkedIn, I managed to meet through a contact, um, a family office, and I had the model, right? And the model was what I needed to be able to illustrate that this was a business that could create significant value. Um, and they had their accountants look at it and said, yeah, we, we agree. Um, and we pretty much agreed in principle, I think, to do something very quickly, a week to 10 days. But uh, but it took six months to get the paperwork done. So this is June, July time. So uh, And by that stage, I had two and a half agencies that wanted to sell. So we had to keep them on board, which was challenging. But we did. And then we finally drew down the first tranche, I think, December the 14th, and completed the first acquisition on December the 17th, I think, three days later. So the first agency we bought was a small one. It only had seven or eight people in it. And we were at that stage trying to buy standalone agencies. And that was a mistake. It's too small, right? So if you want to buy an agency to bolt on, I think that's fine. But a standalone agency of seven or eight people is too small. It's a slight wobble and they just don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the resilience to, 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 to recover. And in addition, the if you're like me, so I, you know, we had right from the start, we had an ethos of not interfering with the agencies. Uh, so we're acquiring them, but we allow them to keep their culture, they keep their MO, everything about them stays the same, just the ownership changes, and we we take care of all the back office operations for them. But right from the start with this one, there was a client, a big, a big client of theirs wobbled. So, you know, the really big lesson straight off, we already knew about things like client concentration. But at that stage also, I was I was doing the deal, I was running the due diligence, I was presenting the due diligence to our investment committee. And I was too close to the deal, if I'm honest. So when the question inevitably came about, you know, okay, this, this, they've got a client concentration problem. I think this one client was 30% of their revenue, something like that. I said, yeah, but that's mitigated by, we made mitigating arguments. And on paper that looked great, in reality, that client had no intention of spending any money with this agency beyond about three months. So what happened was we acquired the agency, the client withdrew, things started to go wrong. And, and the owners, didn't want to or, or couldn't whatever for whatever reason dig in and get that agency out of the hole so that was a real baptism of fire the very first one we made other things that if you are acquiring you'll have to deal with is which again we've learned along the way through a couple of businesses where you've got a situation where there's an owner of a business and they run it they whether they're lifestyle or not they're probably lifestyle right so if you get an agency to 10 12 people and it stays there it's stable. It can put a lot of money in the owner's pocket. And there's nothing wrong. By the way, I very much admire lifestyle businesses because it takes an enormous amount of discipline 
to build and maintain a, a business like that at 10, 12 people. You get you get to a tipping point. It's very hard to stay there. So so I very much uh, admire them. But 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 they behave in certain ways, right? So the owner of a lifestyle business or an owner-managed business of 10 or 12 people is still probably involved in most decisions. You have to be, right? And I've been there myself. That's that's where I was with the business that I um, built. And I didn't make the same mistake this time. But but at that sort of 10 to 12 person point, you're still involved in absolutely everything. So the, so the next bit of received wisdom is that as you as you move on, you've got to train a number two, right? When you train the number two, don't train them to be you. Or if you, when you go to look at agencies to acquire, don't look at people that have trained their number two to be just like the number one. And this is what we found that in most small privately owned businesses, the owners are training their replacements to be them, to have a finger in every pie. And actually, if you want to grow that agency when it comes in, what you want is the opposite. You want people who aren't going to make all the decisions. You want people who are going to let their team make the decisions. That's a, that's like the number one biggest cultural issue to unpick if you acquire an agency. Is 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 if if you're merging it into your own, I think maybe that maybe that's slightly different because they're going to have to embrace your culture. But if you want to acquire an agency and it be a standalone, then that's a really important lesson to learn. So let's just recap on that because we've had a, a couple of people just drop in now. So yes. basically, you started with this first acquisition after some challenges by going to a serendipitous introduction to a family office, by going to this family office, and they agreed. Once you'd showed them a model of this business and how, how well it could do, they agreed to, to finance you to give you this cash for the first acquisition. So the first acquisition went a bit rocky because they had a concentration on one client and once that client left, it made it very difficult for them to be profitable. So after that, so you've made several acquisitions since then. What, taking what you've learned, what is it now that you, you do to, to structure a deal so that it goes in your so, favor? Yes. Yeah, so we changed. I mean, mainly, actually, our approach to due diligence. Well, we did two things. One is for standalone acquisitions, we changed our criteria. So we only look at slightly bigger agencies because... If an agency is too small as a standalone, it ain't going to survive. It, it just won't. It's quite a big transition. I think I underestimated that. So, so we looked at bigger agencies. The key thing when you make an acquisition is what you're actually buying is people. The one thing you don't get to see is people, right? Because no one's going to let you go in and interview their people. So you're taking a hell of a lot on trust, a hell of a lot on trust. You can look at the, the client list, but you don't really know what work they're doing for their clients. You don't know that. You know they've got them as clients, but you know they could be doing fulfillment, not design, right? You know what their case studies look like because they've shown them to you and you can ask them to warrant those cases. You don't really know how much of their work has been done. So we, um, and there's a video out there somewhere on LinkedIn, actually. We changed our due diligence process so that we run a workshop now as part of due diligence where a third party goes in, a very competent third party goes in and runs a one-day strategy workshop uh, with the agency that we're looking to acquire. It's normally on the next 12 months business strategy. We pay for it and it must deliver real value to the agency. It has to be something that they can they can extract value from. But while that's going on, we're the, the facilitators are looking at how the relationships work, how the people work, who's proactive, how uh, ambitious are they. So we then get a report on the agency out of the back end, if you like, of the workshop. And these this companies do workshops like this, by the way, up and down the country all the time. So just because an agency, if anyone's watching this and their agencies met them, doesn't mean a thing. 
<laughs> but, um, like a, a secret shopper, but but only for yeah, it's exactly it's exactly people. that's exactly it. So we just ask them to operate like they normally operate, but in this case, we're paying the bill, and that gives us really. And no one, no one told us to do that. I haven't seen anyone else doing that. But that for me, that's the best tip we've ever had. That 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 that, that gives us insight into the people that are going to be running the business. And um, the second thing that's really easy to do as part of due diligence is ask to see sight of both purchase and sales invoices for sixty days. Because you can you can uh, bluff the services you're delivering to a potential acquirer, but you can't do that to your customer because they'll just reject the invoice. So ask to see original invoices for six days and look at the copy and what they're actually invoicing their clients for. You'll very quickly understand the nature of the relationship that the agency has with its clients. So they're they're the t- kind of the two key learnings I think that we that we took out of the the first one. Okay, so one of the questions that we get asked a lot is how to finance acquisitions, obviously. And it seems like you were kind of lucky, but did very well right, right from the you start. You make your own luck. You always <laughs> yeah. make your own luck, Andy. Well, you're asking <laughs> the right people the right questions on LinkedIn. So, so financing a deal isn't actually as hard, I think, as a lot of people think. And there's a load of, you know, buy a company for naught no, no pounds and naught pence people out there, but that is really hard to do. And you'd really, I mean, you, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but financing a proper deal to buy a proper agency isn't going to be naught pounds and naught pence. So it depends on how on kind of how you want to do the deal and what you want to get out of it, really. So the typical, the typical structure, and I, you know, I'm getting, I'm sure that Andy's probably covering this. The typical structure is a certain amount of cash at closing and the rest delivered over a two or three year period. So the big networks will go longer than that. The longest earnout I've come across, someone told me they'd been put into a nine-year earnout structure, but then no one ever made it to the end of one of those, right? So with us, we try and create realistic earn-out structures and we want people to get to the end of them because that's how we're delivering them the wealth in return for the value of the agency that they've built. So the way I tend to look at transactions is that we're, and it's just a bit of spin, but but it's a good mindset to have, that, that we're engaged in a process of releasing the value that agencies have built over the years they've been running them. And that is a process that happens over time. So the closing consideration typically in a, in a deal will be somewhere between 35 and 50% in our case, depending on the agency, the desire of the owners, that kind of stuff. So but we have a slightly, I think we have a slightly different way of valuing or creating structures than often people we compete at against for deals. The premise, so, so, so the neat thing about doing a deferred deal like that, particularly if there's an earnout on the back end, so two types of deferment, a fixed deferment where they say, where, where someone says, we don't want to take any risk. We know exactly what we want to earn. And you pay them a fixed amount over that period. You'll warrant it against revenues, probably, but it's a fixed amount over three years. That's okay. But you're taking, a, as an acquirer, you're taking a much bigger risk on that transaction than the, than the vendor. A much better transaction, from my point of view, is an earnout, an earnout where uncapped and uncollared. So, so no, top, no top cap and no collar on the bottom to guarantee a minimum amount. So it is what it is, right? So that's the best way of, of releasing value is to give people the value they create. And so in those sorts of structures, the amount that you're looking for up front is balanced by your need to minimize the amount of cash you're putting down on day one and their need not to take too much because they're getting an upside off what they're getting in years one, two, and three on the earnout. And there's that there's that a very, very nice equilibrium then between what you're trying to do and what they're trying to do. And the transaction for us then typically comes out at around 35 to 40 percent. 
And I will say our dealings and all of these things, our starting point is always the word fair, right? What's fair? What looks like fair value? What looks like a fair transaction? There's, no, there's literally no point in trying to nickel and dime anybody. So it's about trying to find a fair way of releasing what we see as the, as the real value of, of their agency. And that's kind of, and you, you mentioned that we're, we do lots of deals, it's because we're fair, right? We, if we say we'll do something, we do it generally. So if you look at a, if you look at, I mean, I don't know what size of, of deals you guys would be looking at, but if you look at an agency, let's say that's doing, let, let, let's pick a small one with round numbers because that, that makes the maths easier. Let's say they're doing 100 grand an EBIT, adjusted EBIT. Okay, so you know, I'm sure Andy's going to talk to you about adjustments, but you know, 100 grand in adjusted EBIT, at absolute standard industry markup, let's say three and a half, four times, something like that, is going to make that agency worth, uh, doing 100 grand is going to make them worth 400 grand, let's say. Okay, so that's what we call our, that's what we call our current value. If they don't change, I, if they deliver 100 grand for the next three years, that agency is worth 400 grand because that's the cash flow it's delivering. And the, and the goodwill, of course, is about what future cash flow it's going to bring into the group. So of that 400 grand, we'd, let's say we're paying 30% up front. Mm, why did I do that for? Okay, so it's 120 down, right? So it's be 120,000 pounds down. So the first place to look for finance, unless you've got your own cash, so if you've got your own cash to deploy, it's the most efficient way of doing it, always, right? Because it's yours, you already own it. Um, the first place to look otherwise, probably in that case, it's not going to work because they're too small. But if it's a bit bigger, is invoice discounting. That would be my first place to look. Um, it's easy. It's secured. There's very rarely a personal guarantee involved. And that's against um, the target, right? Against the target, yes. Yeah. So and you need to discuss this, obviously, with the, with, the, with the owner of the target and say, look, we're needing this as part of the deal finance. We're looking at releasing some value of the business in the following kind of way. Um, so, so that's the first way. Um, no, no, we're, we were in a position that we didn't have to. This is exactly the route I was going down. If they're of a certain size and they have enough throughput on cash flow, you may find lenders, maybe not on the high street, but you may find some, um, some alternative lenders that in addition to doing invoice discounting will also advance you um, cash against cash flow, right? So if they've got enough cash flow going through the business. And you can normally get quite a long way towards your closing consideration doing that. Normally, mm-hmm. in our case, obviously we'd raise we'd raise the money, so so we didn't need to do that. So you've got to have some money, but the financing of it is is not huge. You know? So so it's that, and then I mean there aren't any sexy answers really for this sort of smaller end of the market, and debt obviously is the next approach. So you would go to a yeah. business bank or or to your your business wherever you're banking in the business and just explain what it is you're yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So and, and look, it's no different at the scale we are trying to you know we're trying to operate at the moment either. You know, the strength of your banking relationship is really important. And if you haven't already borrowed some money from your bank, borrow some straight away and make sure you repay it. And when you go course, to borrow- yeah, that's, that's least complicated because you're not giving away any equity in the business. Yeah, so de- debt's always a good place to go. So, so, so one of the problems with most people when they go to the bank, if you run a business and you've never borrowed money from the bank, it's great to say we've never been in debt. But the bank has no good, has no idea about how good you are at repaying debt. And we're slightly in that position. So we're going to, to a bank saying we'd like to borrow some money. And the bank's going, You've got no debt record. So I'd almost advise people, whether you need it or not, borrow some money. Borrow some money off the bank. Show them you can repay a term loan. Then when you need to go and borrow a decent amount of money, they'll look up their history and see that you've got a good track record. But banking, I would say your bank and your relationships you have are always number one. Number two, there are a load of alternative lenders out there that will look at things like this. And I went through a slew of them. I didn't need them in the end. 
but there are a load of alternatives out there. When you say alternative lenders, give us some examples. So, 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 so they're specialists. I mean, you, you look them up on Google. Um, so, so independent invoice discounting companies, for example, independent kind of boutique corporate finance companies that will help in M&A, small M&A, management buyouts, that kind of stuff. There's a load of them online. They're not cheap, but it's cheaper than equity. And, you know, at some stage, you've got to have some skin in the game of your own. So tell us about the, the family office deals. I mean, you've obviously got something in place. So how is that structured so that they get the benefit? And are they loaning you money or are they... they well, take- and, and unfortunately, the, the precise details of ours are confidential, unfortunately. Yeah, just the, as an um, example of how that would work. Well, very general. Well, <laughs> no, um, I can I can explain in broad content in broad in broad content. Look, if you're going to borrow a lot of money from somebody, if you're going to raise a lot of money, and we're talking, you know, several millions, the rules are different. Actually, they're just different. So, I've raised money into companies I think three times. Two on a very traditional route, where you're raising seed capital and then you go for a Series A and you do that kind of stuff. And in that instance, you start with 100% of the equity and you have a horse trade over who's going to get what. Where you go in straight off the bat to take many millions, and you and uh, it's a different it, for this kind of operation. It's a different it's a different setup. It's much more like an opco propco. So, and I described that at the beginning, right? So, in an opco propco, the property company will largely be owned by the investor. And the person that is running that propco will be rewarded based on what they do with the assets that they've that have been invested. That's how an opco propco model or a you know a, a general partner a, a, a arrangement like that would work. Okay. It's not it's not it's not too different from how we work. So just a little bit of advice about starting those types of relationships because one thing I say is actually M and A isn't really about maths and spreadsheets. It's more about networking and, and relationships, and it's very much about the humans involved than the maths. So, just any advice generally about putting yourself out there and, and making connections. Well, LinkedIn LinkedIn's really good, actually. I have to say, LinkedIn's very good. I tried approaching. A, are we talking for deal flow or finance or both? Both sides, really. Just okay. so. So I'll do deal flow first. So deal flow is uh, LinkedIn's really good for because it just is. It, it's a good post. You know, I'm looking to buy a business of the following kind. People like sharing that stuff. If you know, if, they, if they've got a friend who's got a business that they know is trying to sell, and a lot of that, a lot of the leads that we get, and to buy the the seven eight that we have, I've probably looked at 100. And, I've got 180, I think now, or 200 agencies. There's a lot of volume out there. A lot of people for sell. So the first thing is, um, I would say that that's a good place to start. I would avoid, unless you are a particular kind of masochist, the really big brokers. They'll have lots of agencies for sale, but they're just really hard to deal with. And you waste a lot of time. I wasted hours doing that. Too too expensive or in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Much better to do the networking side. But there are also alternative places you can look. Like If you've already got good relationships with marketing or recruitment people in your specialist area, speak to them. Because they're the people, if you own an agency and you want to find someone to replace you, that's where you go. So recruitment companies know who is trying to move on or who is trying to replace themselves or find an MD. And we 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 actually found one of our agencies through a recruitment consultant. So they're recruiters, recruiters, accountants, lawyers, those sorts of people are really good on a slightly esoteric route to go. And it's worth just just asking, hey, have you got anyone? Do you know anyone? Yeah. Um, and that's probably very similar for financial side as well. It's, it's just getting out there and 
financial science very, is very similar. Yes. Yeah. So ultimately, you know, you've got to look at you've got to look at the story actually, because people want to buy a story. They want to buy something they believe in. So it's never just about numbers. If you think about any investor, right? If you're looking for equity investors or an equity partner, they've got a, they've got a bazillion things they can invest their money in, right? I mean, and, and this has been the case every time I've, I've I've raised money, and and what they want is a story either they are interested in and a story that they believe in. So if you've got a compelling reason to do what you're doing and you've got a good story and you can back that story up with a good plan or a good a good model or a good something, there's got to be a good something as well. Like the story will get you through the door. And then you need something that's going to give them. So the, so the process they go through when they make these decisions, in my opinion, is they find something they like and they go, right, I want to invest in that. And then they'll start looking for reasons not to. And you just need to be able to knock all those things over one by one. Oh, yeah, the guys aren't on top of the numbers. No, we are. Here's a spreadsheet. Yeah, but you haven't factored. Yes, we have. You haven't factored this. Yes, we have. So you sort of slightly need to be able to to make sure you've got your ducks in a row that way. But in in terms of originating, it's a, it's about being brazen. I'm afraid about what you're trying to achieve, and say you know if you actually go after what you're trying to achieve, I would avoid crowdfunding. Personally, uh, partly because I think um, it's very difficult to crowd. I did look at it. It's very difficult to crowdfund this kind of deal, mm-hmm. um, and it'll give you a massive headache. I think it'll give you a massive headache for the down line. I don't think. I don't think. For a good agency to go buy another agency, for example, I don't think you need to go there. I think there are plenty of people out there that will fund these sorts of deals. Okay, and finally, because um, you, you obviously had a lot of experience with this very quickly. Once you've um, you've got the business and you've acquired them into the group, what's your next steps? Any advice around that, about bringing them into the company and problems yeah. that you've had to so, deal with? So, um, the, 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 so, the, so the way we try and operate now, when, it, when a company comes into our group, we don't touch them for 90 days. So obviously we want to meet the people. And obviously we want them to meet us and we want everyone to have any, be able to ask any questions. It depends on, on what you're acquiring and why. If you're acquiring a Bolson or you're buying volume or you're going to merge teams, totally different thing. But if you want that company to retain its own culture, it's actually quite a big mind fry going through a transaction like that and having an ownership structure. And people get very insecure very quickly with, with reason, understandably, you know, things suddenly, the whole world, which was certain, looks like it's changed. So we try and stay really in the background, apart from obviously being, you know, open to answer any questions that people want, just to let that company come to terms with it, so the client come to terms with it, because what they find with us is nothing actually really changes. The day the day before and the day after the transaction are pretty much identical. And the week before and the week after are pretty much identical and the same for months and quarters and years. Um, so we leave them alone to start with. And our preferred period is 90 days. That just allows them to, 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 to settle in. But it also allows us to do a lot of planning. So the first things we'll try and bring across because it is a communication tools. So we'd migrate people into our Office 365 tenant. Um, so we can email everybody together and they can all see each other's diaries and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll start introducing systems bit by bit, making so contracts kind of need to be novated over. So there is a transfer of undertaking. So whatever terms people have on their existing contracts, you'll have to honor. Um, so we generally reissue contracts um, um, in uh, uh, within the first, we do reissue contracts within the first 90 days. So that kind of doesn't affect things. It's, it, it's, the, it's the day-to-day stuff. We don't want to change too much. So we're not going to ask them to remove their bookkeeping team or change the way there is invoices or you know, introduce a new CRM on day one, all that kind of yeah, stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 we do. So over time, so we take the back office away, right? Because that's the bit that distracts everybody. No one likes sending out 
no one likes, well, some people like sending them out. No one likes, no one gets into the creative business to do book work, book, bookkeeping. And who does, the, who does that then? Once you centralize that, where does that come from? Is it the first so, company? Well, so, we, so, we, no, so we started a company to do that called Drumhorse. So Drumhorse provides all of our IT support, all of our bookkeeping, our HR. Um, it does some procurement work across the group for us. Um, so we so yeah, so we started an agency to do that. But there, look, there are plenty of good bookkeeping firms out there that will, you know, they're very low cost that will pick up that kind of that can, that can pick up that kind of work and consolidate, um, you know, charts of account and 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 that sort of stuff. But but the big one of the other big reasons for not doing too much too early on is if there's a big culture shock and things start going south, you don't want the owners of the business you've acquired to turn around and say, it's your fault. You changed everything. So, so for us, you know, if things do start going wrong, we, you have to be able to, it's not, it's not about whose fault it is, but you need to be able to identify the source of the issue if you're going to solve it. And if you're too hands-on and they say it's your fault, all you can do is withdraw. But if that's not the problem, that agency is going to still continue going down. And bear in mind, by this stage, you've given them the closing consideration. So, 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 actually, when things start going wrong, you want to double down effort, not remove effort. So, it's important to my mind to, to keep things as clean as possible post transaction. So, if, if there is a wobble, if they lose a client, or if a couple of staff start to leave, you can identify the issue and pounce on it nice and fast. Brilliant. Probably a very peppered journey, but you can't go into too much uh, detail, I should imagine, because they're still your staff. Okay, so thank you very much for that, Dom. We're going to have a few questions from everybody in a second. I know that you also do your own podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about how to stay in touch with Dom and where can they sign up to newsletters or follow you around the internet? Sure. So sobeanderson.com is the website. That's um, that's kind of the mothership for all our content. The podcast is on there. It's also on marketingtrek.co.uk. Um, so I'm there. We're on LinkedIn. Please do connect to me on LinkedIn. Anyone who's watching this, you guys, if you'd like to. Um, we're very, very open. So I mentioned at the beginning that I had that disastrous sale of, of a business. When we founded this, half the reason we did it was to, to behave in a way that we hoped people had treated us, right? So to prove that you can get on without being a shit in business, frankly. <laughs> so we're always very straightforward. You know, if you're on this call and you've got a question, I will always answer it. Connect to me on LinkedIn. Send me a message there. I'm not going to give out my email address because this might be watched by other people. And I know Annie will probably broadcast it. But um, connect me on LinkedIn and I'll give you my email there. I, I'm in Clubhouse. Who knew oh, Who knew Clubhouse could be such a weird thing? Yeah. yeah, that's a dangerous place to go. So, um, but I'm on there. If, you, um, if you're uh, on there, look me up. Dom Horse, Twitter, all the normal places. Okay, brilliant. All right. So anybody would like to ask any questions at this point? Would you like to raise a hand and turn your mic on? I don't think we've got too many people. So, Will. Turn your mic on and let's, let's hear your question. So, uh, thanks for that, Dom. It's really good, really useful. In terms of the actual proposition of the group, that you've obviously mentioned that you allow this kind of autonomy to exist and that you can make some kind of economies of scale by taking on the back office operation. What is the vision beyond that? And is that part of what you go to when you go to the target? Or otherwise, what's the offer to the target other than, you know, multiples? So the... So, I mean, people come, people sell for a number of different reasons, obviously. Um, there, is, there is a vision beyond and bigger than that. When we started, I mean, these things change over time, right? So, so the, base, the base drivers of why we did it have morphed into something a little bit more sophisticated now, purpose and mission statement. But, but, the, but the root of why we did what we're doing is still there. From a, but the value proposition 
is different from from audience to audience. So from a client point of view, we're trying to build a network of specialists. So we we believe the best talent exists in specialists, not generic agencies. We believe the right way for agencies to grow is deep into a niche, not laterally. So it's really hard to be really good at you know, making films, building websites, and doing media relations. They're just different disciplines, they're different businesses. So, so our sort of mantra is we believe in integration at group level, not at agency level. So we seek to go out and acquire groups to allow us to deliver that. So from a client point of view, you know, we're trying to deliver a super kind of agile and, and problem-oriented team. So it can come across agency or into each agency, but you know, it's about what the client wants. From an agency owner's point of view, um, as I said, people have different reasons. Some of them are emotional. Quite a lot of them are emotional, actually. So selling an agency to anyone is a pretty stressful thing to do. So you want to know that the people you're dealing with are honest and transparent and have the best interests of everyone at heart. So that's that's part of the, I mean, the, the, the process we go through normally is the first meeting to chemistry meeting, which is, do we like each other? Because we have to like each other if we're going to, if we're going to work together. Well, I don't have to become friends or anything, but you know we have to be able to have a sensible conversation, um, and we have to have we have to share a worldview to some extent, right? I'm not talking politically, but sort of market, and, you know, how you treat people and that kind of stuff. So that's the that's the first thing. So there's a very personal connection normally, um, and you know, like all these things, you know, we've got our gut instincts are, is a distillation of all the things we've learned and all the things we know over the years. And, and, and so gut instinct is generally to be trusted. And that's why for me, the chemistry meeting is really important. It's hard on zoom, right? Much easier face to face, but, but that first chemistry meeting is the, are these on both sides is, do we think we can work with these people beyond that? It's, you know, I will spend quite a lot of time actually selling our vision to an agency to say, look, this is why we're doing what we're doing. So I'll talk about our belief in, uh, for us, and it, obviously for you, it's going to be different depending on what, what your particular beliefs are. For us, it's a belief in specialism. It's a belief that um, if someone's worked very hard to build and, uh, and establish a culture and their name is above the door, they may want to see some legacy. They may want to see that continuing. And it's really, that is a really important thing. You know, for me, you know, when I sold my company, the name was taken off the door and they got rid of my board and they changed the product mix and they took all the cash out of it and then they handed it back and said, this, this thing's broken. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock, you changed everything. <laughs> but um, so, you know, so we're trying to buy winning formulas and not change them. And, and, and that's a reassuring message for a lot of people that have built agencies and, and want to see them thrive. The second thing that's really important is one's approach to people and what opportunities the staff from an existing agency would have as part of a larger group. So we're seeing quite a lot of agencies looking to join larger entities because they they want scale to continue their own growth as an agency, not just as an entity, but also for their people. So that's, you know, an enlarged, an enlarged presence brings new opportunities. It also, an enlarged presence brings opportunities to do things that you can't as a small agency. So things like, you know, training, centralized training and development, you know, buying power, all that kind of stuff delivers benefits in to people that you can't necessarily get independently. You can in time, obviously, because you know, as long as you keep growing, you get there. But um, but we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, I think in COVID we saw a little bit of uh, run for protection. So some people were were coming in saying, you know, we're not we're not that sure about the future. 
So, you know, we, I don't think we I don't think we ended up completing on any of those sorts of transactions because if someone isn't confident about their agency, kind of why would we be? Mm. Um, you know, we like confident people that want to grow. Um, numbers numbers are the numbers are always important, but, but in no case that I've dealt with have the numbers been a primary concern. So so this is actually this is another learning, a key learning actually that, that, that I've made along the way. So when I first started, I didn't really like talking about money too much. And I wanted to get them to really like what we're doing because I thought that, you know, if I didn't mention money until the end, we might be able to get a better deal. And negotiation kind of to me these days, I learned, isn't about more money, less money. It's the stuff around the sides is where we normally negotiate because there's pretty much an established path, right? So there's a bunch of criteria you look at in an agency to work out what the multiple is going to be. So trying to nickel and dime something on a little bit of money here and a little bit of money there on the total consideration doesn't really get you what you want. Um, what you want is the best quality you can possibly afford, um, not something that's affordable. It's a different thing. So I used to leave talking about money to the end. Now I like to do it you know, the other way around. I like to get quite quickly towards what an outline of an offer might look like. And the starting point to me is what does the total consideration look like? Like If you hit your forecasts and if this thing works out, this is what I think the deal size looks like. Does that sound good to you? And if they say yes, then we can say, how are we going to structure that? If they say no, then I haven't wasted too much time and they haven't wasted too much time. But so, so typically, I would go chemistry meeting, disclosure of financials. I'll say where I think we can play financially. And if I've got it wrong, and it does happen, people come back and say, actually, you've got this wrong. We're worth more than that. And this is why. And I can justify it. I'll go, okay, fine. We're prepared to consider that. And then we'll look at how we structure that. So the money thing, matters but it's but it's it's never been the most important thing with anything i've got beyond the early days there have been a couple that have just walked away because they want the moon and we're and that's just not who we are so just try and get a few more questions that that answer your question will anything else i've got loads but carry on <laughs> was there anybody else that had their hand up that i might have missed be interested in asking something or we're we just going to let will take the floor Okay, Will, do you want to do you want to follow on with Jerry, Jerry? Jerry's got his hand up. Has he, Jerry? Go on then, Jerry. Hi, Dom. Um, Hi, Jerry. Firstly, that was really interesting. Thank you very much. And when you look to acquire businesses, is it always a hundred percent, or would you look at a fifty-one percent, fifty percent? So we started at hundred um, percent. We do we do look at less now. Again, it very much depends on what you want to do and why you would be doing it. We didn't want to get into the situation where we owned ransom strips in agencies. Um, so we looked at one where we were going to buy 10 and 20 then, you know, so we'd buy, we'd literally buy a, an incremental amount over the year, o- over the years that didn't work out in the end. We have, we have looked at deal. I wouldn't look at buying as little as 51% personally, um, because at that level, it's quite hard for me, just for what we're doing, it's quite hard to consolidate numbers and it introduces complexity. And sort of simplicity is one of my most important things. If things get too difficult, we, we can't do them. Um, the other thing is, as an acquirer, um, buying the, the value that you get out of deals comes from leverage. That's why you don't need to worry about negotiating too hard on price, right? So price is important and it's important that it's fair but it's the leverage that you put into a deal. How you structure it over those years, that's where you're going to get the value. And the break-even on a four-times deal is what, four and a half, three and a half, four and a half years, whatever it is, something like that, um, for you as an investor. But when you do break-even and the profits start to accrue, assuming 
you've managed to keep that unit in, that's where your value is delivered. It's delivered from leverage. Now, it's hard to do that if you're only buying 50% of a business because assuming you want to buy out the other 50% of business, at some stage, you've got to stick your hand in your pocket to pay for that. So you lose all your leverage by doing that. And it's a, it becomes, it's not just about, it's not just about cost because it is a more expensive way of doing deals. It's also a lot more risky to do the deal that way for you because you're effectively taking all the risk on the bit that you buy. Now, from a seller's point of view, it's a very attractive thing to do, obviously. Um, but there's no guarantee you're going to buy the other 49%. So then you're into legal arguments about, do they have, do they have a put option? Can they force you to buy it? And if they do, what's the valuation? And if we've grown, what's the multiple going to be when we've grown? So there's a whole load of other complications that come in that generally there's enough deal flow out there that if somebody only wants to sell 50%, I let them sell it to someone else. To be honest. So we're seeing with uh, Martin Sorrow of uh, S4 Capital, for instance, he's doing a lot of mergers now. Is that a, an approach you would take where you would acquire, well, potentially you would acquire 100% of the business, but you would give some equity in the top coat to the businesses that you're acquiring? Is that something you consider? So, so we don't. It's not something, it's just not in our in our business model or in our DNA. I understand it works for some people for where we are right now. Um, we, so, so one of the other issues that I had, um, and this again, this comes back to, you know, receive, receive learning. I think I've been a paper millionaire about four times in my life with various different, you know, option schemes that I've belonged to. And when I sold my company, it was to an American public company and or the, the acquisition was in shares. Um, and those shares didn't materialize. They turned into nothing. Um, so we just have a very simple maxim where we do cash deals. When we buy a business now, we buy it for money. We don't buy it for shares. And some people don't like that and some people do. But as I said, there's a lot of volume out there. So, so if you're looking at making your transactions more cash efficient, then I think putting some equity on the table can be good, particularly if you're trying to do an, an ambitious acquisition. Um, then I think you know, that's, that's going to deliver you more value than by acquiring everything for cash. You know, because you're going to grow that much faster once you've acquired them, then I think that probably works for where we are and how we're structured. It just doesn't work. But it doesn't mean I don't think it's a good idea. Okay, brilliant. All right, any more questions, guys? I think we're going to wrap up there. Maybe just one quick one off, Will, if we can get a, a quick... Uh, a quick one was, look, so I get this idea that the you talked about a, a client network of specialists where you want to kind of go deep into a niche, um, but you're acquiring these businesses and you're letting them run on their own with a high degree of autonomy, at least for the sort of 90 days or what have you. Uh, what and how are you investing or, you know, in this idea of actually how do you get this kind of integration and the value from this being a network? How does that work? So, well, so, so some of the value is delivered on the back end, obviously, through economies of scale. So, so simply, we are able to get cheaper insurance for everybody because we put all the insurance into one broker. So, and, you know, we operate all of the back office we have it. We set up a company in uh, Macedonia, where we employ, I think, eight nine people now, um, and they deliver brilliant services into the agencies. Um, it, it, it's a fabulous place, so we're able to deliver value into the agencies that way. So we're, we're removing some. We're removing cost off the back end. But, but look, the, the Nirvana for everybody in a group like ours is is the agencies collaborate, right? But it's also the hardest thing to do. It's not something that we can mandate from HQ, it's got to be done agency to agency. But if they can get it right, then, then you know, there are, there's significant value that can be added by agencies collaborating. Now, in our case, because the agencies are standalone, and, and um, it's a little bit harder. But I think if you're, if you're bringing and merging in, then I think that's probably a lot easier because and different people are doing it in different ways. So 
I mean, there's one group like ours where everyone lives in the same building. We have offices dotted all over the place. It just depends on on how you want your culture to be. But that's, and again, that's part of your personal DNA and culture, I think. But the, the so collaboration is nice. It's, we're not doing this to collaborate. We don't we don't need to do this for the collaboration piece. It would be good if the, if people do collaborate. Ultimately, that will happen because we're running business development programs as Selby Anderson. And when we bring and start talking to clients as Selby Anderson, then we'll assemble teams from the agencies. But 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 that will always be led by one of our agencies, not not by us. Uh, and and in doing that, you know, if we if we're identifying problems that need, you know, at its most basic level, PR and lead gen, we've got one of each of those. So we'd ask people to collaborate on it. Okay, brilliant. All right, some fantastic answers there, and I'm sure everybody's taken some value away from from that. Okay, so make sure everybody gets in touch with Dom via LinkedIn. Then he's happy to take more questions. Probably not too many today. And thank you very much, Dom, for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic. I'm sure everybody's learned a load from that, including myself and my team, who've also jumped onto this call as well. So fantastic to see you and uh, see you again soon. Thank you very much for attending. And yeah, we'll follow up via email, I'm sure, with extra questions and stuff in the background. Brilliant. Okay, see everybody soon. Have a good Friday. Thanks very much.